And there are numerous ways that we can think and pray and imagine salvation and imagine life with God. So many different metaphors. And whenever someone says there's only one metaphor, please run in the other direction. The cross is one metaphor of many. There is a pattern when you read through the book of Genesis and honestly when you read throughout scripture of God giving human beings something and then human beings squandering the gift that God has given. We might call this sequence gift, squander, gift. The first instance that we read of this, of course, we heard last week, Adam and Eve. We get these readings in Lent every few years. It's kind of a sequence um, in chronological order, if you will, of Genesis and what evangelical Christians would call salvation history. But here we have Adam and Eve who receive basically the gift of life, a garden, a beautiful place to live, a beautiful God with whom to live life. They are given one simple guardrail and that does not work out. Gift, squander. A good, good scholar of scripture, Dr. Will Gaffney, um, has no patience for what a lot of Christians call the fall. That term does not appear in scripture. And what she says is that God promises that Adam and Eve will die the day that they eat of the fruit in the garden. And Christians have over-spiritualized this and say, well, they died spiritually. Well, yeah, that's not necessarily the case. They didn't die. So they squandered the gift, and then they were given the gift to continue living. Ten generations later, and Emily can attest to this, I was studying this week when I could find time to do it for tonight, and the scholar Robert Alter points out that there are ten generations between Adam and Noah, and ten generations between Noah and Abraham. So 10 generations later, God has given the descendants of Adam the gift of life. It has continued. And Adam's descendants decide that they're going to begin killing each other, beginning with his first two sons. Fratricide becomes common and other forms of domination and violation become common. And evil begins permeating the world 
And in a very dark turn, God destroys the earth and everything on it. I would say that's an overreaction. (laughs) But for the purposes of this story, God destroys the earth. But a remnant of life on earth continues in what we call the ark, Noah and the ark. And there are two representatives in this story of each species on the earth. Um, Some fundamentalists really get nervous about this story because it doesn't explain the extinction of dinosaurs. But that is neither here nor there. You can't read, you cannot read Genesis literally. I mean, you just can't. It's, It's great storytelling, great mythology in the best sense of the word myth. Myth does not necessarily mean not true. Myth means a large story that is really true, whether that particular story happened or not. We're Episcopalians, we're very comfortable with that. For the most part. (laughs) So then we get to this story Noah, and he and his family are rescued by God in the ark. And I was really curious this week, you know, I've grown up in church my whole life, read these stories my whole life, I was like, what, what happened after they landed? Like, what, what was the first thing they did? And they sent this carrier pigeon out who goes and brings back nothing and then goes out and then brings back a fig. And I don't know if this is Veggie Tales or the Bible, but then the carrier pigeon comes back and brings a fig with the leaf on it. I just made that up probably. And they're like, it's safe for us to leave. We can leave the ark now. And the first thing they do when the water recedes is build an altar to God. They bless God, they thank God for their safe arrival. And in the face of mass destruction, Noah and his family create beautiful worship. They were the original Episcopalians. (laughs) They create beautiful worship in the face of mass destruction. And then the gift is squandered by Noah's descendants. And Noah's descendants, 10 generations later, build something called the Tower of Babel. Have you heard of the Tower of Babel? It's an architectural feat that probably took a really large capital campaign. And God is offended by the Tower of Babel. And I would like to think that God is offended by the Tower of Babel because the Tower of Babel, not because it was beautiful, not because God's ego was hurt or that there was in some way some competition with God and 
between God and humans and power and a power struggle between God and humans. I think God is affronted because the text is very specific that the descendants of Noah wanted to build this tower so that their names would be made great and so that they could continue to have one language and be one people. This is a hegemonic move, and this is a move toward continued homogeny. And I think the God who creates everything, who is not allergic to diversity, was very affronted by this because Noah's descendants were seeking in some way to control and micromanage the world and say, we're just gonna be one people, we're just gonna have one language. I think there's a reason that the United States has never had an official language to this day. There are people who try every year to make English the official language, but we do not have an official language because it leaves it open-ended that this can be a land for people of different linguistic, ethnic, and racial backgrounds. And the God of Noah is deeply, deeply interested in that kind of a project. So they're given a gift, they squander the gift. And sort of simultaneously, Abram and Sarai enter the story. And Abram and Sarai, who will eventually become Abraham and Sarah, they become kind of the anti-tower of Babel. I remember hearing this about 10 years ago in a book and was so intrigued. They become an anti-tower of Babel. If the Tower of Babel is a monument to certainty, Abram and Sarai are a monument to ambiguity. They are beyond childbearing age. They are told by God to leave all that is familiar. They are told by God to leave their ice cream shop in their favorite neighborhood, in their favorite city. Imagine the horror of that. I had really good ice cream the other day, and so it's on my mind. <laughs> Did not give up dairy products for Lent. <laughs> and we get to the story, and, and we see this kind of weaved throughout all of these stories. The consistent theme is that God's love for us is persistent. God does not give up on God's promises. When God in some way is tempted, it, it, it seems with Adam and Eve, God is tempted to be cruel with them, hard on them. The day that you eat of this fruit, you shall die. God relents on God's promise to kill them. 
God does go on to destroy the world, unfortunately, in Noah's generation. But I think that's kind of an outlier of the rest of the stories. For the most part, God is consistently persistent about love and life. And then we get this just weird story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a leader in his community. And he and Jesus have this strange conversation about childbirth and baptism and the Holy Spirit. Strange. How can a person enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus offers a beautiful image that just as Moses lifted the snake in the wilderness, lifted the staff that became a snake, so must the human one, or in older translations, the son of man be lifted up, elevated, so that the world would be drawn to him. There is another passage in one of the Gospels in which Jesus says, if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And he alludes to this here. And he says a Bible verse that I wonder, my goodness, did Jesus regret saying it if he knew that it would show up on NFL players' helmets at the Super Bowl? God, I would, I, I would take it out if I could. <laughs> For God so loved the world, in the King James Version, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but might have everlasting life. A lot of Christians love to end there. But verse 17 says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world. That belief in Jesus and life with Jesus and life with the one who continues to give us life, who continues to give us the gift of life, even when it's squandered, Life with him is never limited to those who just give cognitive assent to Jesus. The life that Jesus offers is not just for those of us who profess a Christian faith. This life, and this is not chronological life, the life that Jesus offers here, eternal life is about the quality of life. In John, it's eternal life. 
In Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. In Mark, it's the kingdom of God. In Luke, who borrowed from Mark, it's the kingdom of God. These are all metaphors for a quality of life one takes on when one follows Jesus. And wherever someone is living life to the full, life that is gushing forward, life in a cup that is running over, there God is. Atheist, Buddhist, name it what you will. If life is there, Jesus is there. And that is the life that God so desperately wants us to be conscious of. That is the life that God does not give up on, and that is the life that is the through line from Adam, Eve, Noah, Abram, Sarai. Jesus. A quality of life that is offered not only to human beings, but to the whole cosmos. And when we tap into that life, when we catch the vision of that life, we begin to understand that that life is also for watersheds that need to be healed. That life is also for the person who goes to sleep wondering where their next meal will come from or how their next bill will be paid. That kind of life extends to fixing roads and ensuring that people have clean water to drink. That is the quality of life that Jesus offers, not just to us, but to the whole world. And far be it from us to ever hoard that life. Amen.